0: If you have your Bibles, can I encourage you to join me in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, as we began studying last week, and I know this is not rocket science, falls between Romans 14 and Romans 16. And the reason I point that out is Romans 14 has some real estate within it that we are somewhat familiar with. And as the Apostle Paul closes out his letter to the believers in Rome in chapter 16, there is again some familiarity to it and a real personal insight because he names names of individuals, friends, assets within ministry that God is using. Romans 15 kind of falls in between there and I would imagine we haven't learned, it's not really familiar real estate within scripture to us, but I think there is great value in I means students of the Word of God, and getting into the in-between chapters. And in this passage of Scripture, I believe what is communicated to us from the heart of the Apostle Paul is a revelation of his wholehearted pursuit of holy things. Now that's something that really sounds churchy to us, pursuing holy things. But all of that is attainable, all of that is reachable, all of that is understandable. It also communicates his wholehearted passion for the cause of Jesus Christ. And as we work through this, we will assess whether or not we are wholeheartedly passionate pursuing holy things, and whether or not we are passionate about fulfilling the cause of Christ in our lives. And I would venture to say that everybody in here wants to be a difference maker, There isn't anybody in here who wants to reach the end of their days and assess that their life has not counted. All of us want to matter. One wrote of the Apostle Paul that he was a real revolutionary, and I believe that he was. He was not a revolutionary, culturally speaking, but he was a revolutionary equipped with the good news of Jesus Christ. The reality is the Apostle Paul is, at this point in time, an aging man. His body is somewhat feeble, his body is somewhat frail, but like a revolutionary going up against the power of the Roman Empire, armed only with the good news of Jesus Christ, he makes an incredible difference. He has what we might assess is the ideal missionary heart. One of the most fascinating aspects about the Apostle Paul is his genuine love For the church. I use that in somewhat of a generic term, but then his personal love for the churches that he was associated with. Much of the New Testament is penned by the Apostle Paul. You, of course, have the Gospels and you have the book of Acts, which is the history of the New Testament church. And then you enter into the epistles, and many of those epistles, those letters written to groups of believers, were penned by the Apostle Paul. In those letters, it is evident that he cares deeply about the Christians that are receiving the letter. It is evident that he desires greatness for them. In fact, we can unearth quite simply, as he wrote to the believers in Philippi Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown. You can hear in his language, he is saying, I care about you like your family. You are dearly beloved to me. I long to be in your presence. I long for that closeness of relationship. You are my joy. You are the source of my ministerial and my life's joy. You are my crown. You are my reward. Imagine what he is revealing in that phrase. He'll come back and he'll tell the believers at Thessalonica this. For what is our hope, he's asking What is our joy? What is our crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye, you, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? He again is communicating to this group of believers in Thessalonica that they are the reward for his life. He cares about them deeply. He loves them so much. He loves them so much and he cares about them to such a degree that he is willing to correct them. We can think of this in some terms parentally. I care enough about my child to correct them when they are errant so that they are not harmed in that behavior. He's writing to the church at Ephesus, which was a great church. It was in a a successful society there at Ephesus, pastored by Timothy. And he writes to this group of believers in Ephesians 4, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind one to another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. He's writing and he's exhorting them to behave together in a kinder way. He's addressing a very real issue amongst a group of believers. He'll come back and he'll tell the church at Corinth, which was a troubled church. We're studying through Sunday night's Bible study, the book of First Corinthians. They were a troubled group of believers, even perverse in their behavior. He writes this to them in 1 Corinthians eleven. For it hath been declared unto me of you. Somebody told me about you, and here's what they told me about you. By them which are of the house of Chloe. Chloe sent a letter, those that are of her house, and they said that there are contentions among you. That's pretty straightforward speech. I have been made aware, the Apostle Paul says, that in your body of believers, there are some contentions, there are schisms, there are factions that are beginning to develop. He cares about them and he corrects them. And at times it requires that he gets very pointed in his language and in his speech. These books of the Bible as we know them were at one time written as open letters to the church. This letter would have been received from the Apostle Paul, the body would have gathered together, and this doctrine would have been communicated to them in a public forum somewhat like this. He's so pointed in his correction of them, based on his care for them, that in the book of Philippians, he writes this in Philippians 4, 2, I beseech Euodius, that's a name, and beseech Syntyche, a name, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now that's very pointed, because if you were attending that service and you were beginning to fade a little in listening, like some of you are now, and beginning to doze just a little bit, and then you heard two personal names addressed, you would have popped awake because you would have been very interested in them getting corrected by the Apostle Paul. I'm trying to get us to understand the context of a passage of Scripture like Romans 15, because Scripture like this can sometimes zip right over our heads. This matters greatly to the apostle. To such a degree that he views these churches, these gatherings of believers, as the source of his joy in life, as his reward for faithful ministry. To such a degree that he is not afraid to correct these groups, he has told the believers at Ephesus, you need to stop being angry. You need to be done with the wrath, with the slander and the gossip and the evil speaking and be nice to each other, be compassionate towards each other, forgive each other. He said to the church at Corinth, listen, this letter is necessitated because those of the household of Chloe have told me there are some divisions going on in the church and those at Philippi, he has said, you and Syntite, y'all need to get along better. He's very pointed, and I think that shines some real light on the context of the verse that I want to read to you now from Romans 15. Romans 15 and verse 14, here's what the apostle writes to the believers in Rome. And I myself, that's Paul, also am persuaded of you, my brethren. And though he says brethren, he's using a generic term. All of you believers in Rome that are receiving this letter that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to admonish one another. Now, Paul has never attended the church at Rome. He did not found the church at Rome. He did not pastor the church at Rome. But word has reached him, and their testimony of faith has gone around the world. And he says of them, I am persuaded, I am fully convinced that you are wholehearted in your pursuit of holiness. And you are wholeheartedly passionate about fulfilling the cause of Christ in your life. You are real revolutionaries. You are change makers. You are catalysts for change in the world in which you live and be mindful of the fact that they lived in Rome. Sometimes we think taking a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ is counterculture in our day. Understand it was unbelievably radical and transformative to follow Jesus Christ in the city of Rome, where on just about every street corner was a temple to a pagan god. And the ritualistic worship of those pagan gods was unbelievably hedonistic. It was carnal. It was lewd and it was vile behavior. In order to stand as a Christian in Rome, you were facing actual physical persecution. Loss of life surrounding you on all sides. In fact, as the Apostle Peter warns us of our adversary, the devil, he likens him to a roaring lion and to a Christian in the first century, they would have immediately understood what he was saying. Because they knew actual lions to rend actual Christians apart. He is saying, that's what your adversary does to you spiritually speaking. To stand for Christ in Rome required wholehearted pursuit of holy things and wholehearted commitment to the cause of Christ. And Paul is saying, I am convinced of some good things about you. This is a little bit of a different tone than his letter to Corinth, is it not? Even the writer of Hebrews to his recipients said, you are slow to listen and you are slow to learn. He is saying it is possible even in a hedonistic pagan society that is darkened by sin to stand out and make a difference and he gives us three integers. It wouldn't be a sermon if there weren't three. So it's really helpful that the Bible does this for us because we're not elaborating this. We're not adding on to it. All we're doing together is unpacking the scripture. And here's what he says. And and through this, we will be able to assess whether or not we are wholehearted in our pursuit of holy things and passion for the cause of Christ. He says, here's what I'm fully convinced of, that you are full of goodness, that you have the right motives, full of goodness. Doesn't that sound great? You know what it sounds like? like a bag of fast food, right? A full of goodness. Like a bag of your favorite donuts, full of goodness. What is indicated in the Bible language is this: full of goodness is depicting a sponge. And if you took that sponge and you submersed it into a liquid, and then you pulled that sponge out of whatever liquid you immersed it in, and then you squeezed the sponge, whatever the sponge was full of would come out of the sponge. And here is what he is saying, I am fully convinced that when life squeezes you, goodness comes out. Now, when we think about goodness like that, I think what we imagine is perhaps an affable personality, somebody that everybody likes, you know, somebody that everybody likes, everybody universally likes some people. Just think about it. You say, right now, I don't like you. You're an outsider. You're, you're, you're not one of the normals. Everyone likes me. Here's what he's saying. Listen, now as we dig into this and we're unpacking this, he's saying it's not a matter of likability. It's not a matter of affable personality. I'm not telling you to modify your behavior and start to be good. He is saying the reality of this is you have to give off a fruit of the Spirit because goodness as it is used in this verse is listed in Galatians 5.22 as one of the fruits of the Spirit. Listen, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, love, Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. When we grow into the likeness of Christ, lights go out. (laughs) Because we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And computers reboot. But I can see you, and you can see me, and we're okay. When we grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ, the fact is, we produce fruits of the Spirit. It is not a modification of our behavior that all of a sudden we produce love. It is not a modification of our behavior that all of a sudden we are joyful or that we produce meekness. The fact is, as we submit to the Holy Spirit and we walk under the influence of the Holy Spirit, goodness is part of who we are. And the Bible teaches us if we walk in the spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Naturally, my default setting, naturally speaking, is one of selfishness. I care about me. My selfishness makes me angry when I don't get my way. When I bump into other people in life, joy is only known by me when I get what I want. That is not the kind of joy we are discussing. Here is the goodness. When life squeezes you, goodness comes out of you because you are submissive to the Holy Spirit and you are like Jesus Christ. There is no good in you. So I didn't come to church to be told that there's no good in me. That's fine because the Apostle Paul says, I know that in me dwelleth no good thing. And without the Lord Jesus Christ and minus the Holy Spirit, the same can be said of us. Because even on our best day, our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of holy God. So how can I be full of goodness? When life squeezes me, how can goodness gush out? Be like Christ, submission to the Holy Spirit, and goodness comes out. The more that you study the Bible, the more that you will come to understand that God is desperate for goodness to be a trait of his children. Listen for just a second. A few chapters earlier in Romans 12, here's what Paul writes. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good, despise wickedness, hate, abhor that which is evil, and glue yourself to what is good. Here's what we know about the believers in Rome. They had done just that. Paul says, I am fully convinced that you are morally excellent. I am fully convinced that you hate sin. I am fully convinced that you love righteousness. I am fully convinced that you abhor that which is evil and you have glued yourself to that which is good. I am fully convinced that you are like Jesus Christ and you are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. You are full of goodness. In Romans chapter 13, he writes this, speaking of the government, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil." Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do you not want to be afraid of the authority that is the government? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. He was giving a pep talk to the believers at Galatia, and he says to them, Be not weary in well-doing. Why would the Apostle Paul have to tell a group of believers, I know that it is exhausting and I know that in the battle of life and I know that in the spiritual race that we are running, it is possible, it is probable that you will fatigue in that journey. I exhort you to keep on going. Don't be weary in well-doing. He'll finish that verse and say this, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. For a believer who is wholehearted about holy living, for a believer who is wholehearted is full of goodness. Being full of goodness is not a small commitment. Jesus Christ said this in in, in Acts 10. This is said of Jesus Christ, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good. Jesus Christ went about doing good. I need you to pause for just a second and recognize how big a commitment it is to be full of goodness. Because when we gather together on a Sunday morning and we hear from the word of God, we expect to be challenged. And a message like this, an outline like this, a verse like this is so academic, it is so simplistic that we cannot imagine that it is corrective in its nature. Pastor, you're telling a group of believers to be full of goodness. Of course we're good. We're putting up with your sermon. We're inherently good. But I say to you, this isn't a personality trait. I'm not saying to you, be better than your neighbor, who despises God. I'm not saying to you, be better at your morals than someone who is a rejecter of God and all things right. I am saying to you, it must be a step further where you are like Jesus Christ and submissive to the Holy Spirit. And if you think that's challenging, here's the second point that Paul brings up. I'm fully convinced that when life squeezes you, goodness gushes out. And then he says this, I also know that you are filled With all knowledge. How many of you love know-it-alls? Nobody likes a know-it-all, do they? They just know everything. They have always been where you're going. They've always done it just a little better. They've always traveled just a little further. They always have just a little more insight. Nobody likes a know-it-all. When the apostle says, I am fully convinced that all of you in Rome are filled with all knowledge, he is not saying, I am fully convinced that all of you are know-it-alls. And he's not saying, I'm fully convinced that all of you have already figured everything out. What he is communicating is this. I am fully convinced that you have everything that you need to have in order to be like Jesus Christ and submissive to the Holy Spirit. I am fully convinced that you have everything that you need to navigate your journey through this life and successfully make it to the destination, having made an impact and having made a difference. I know you are filled with all knowledge. It strikes me that he is talking directly about the Word of God. In fact, the book of Romans is one of the most theological treatises in all the New Testament. I mean, he's communicating doctrine. But he is telling them, I know that you are already filled with all knowledge. You have everything that you need. You are open to the teaching of the Word of God. You are open to receiving what God wants to say to you. Here's, what he, he, here's how he applauds them in Romans chapter 1. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the world. Now, again, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse. I, I don't want to overapply it, but you have to grasp what life was like in Rome for Christians. They were in the midst of paganism relativism, secular humanism. They were around the worship of false gods. They were surrounded by immorality. And he is saying, I get it. I am grasping how you are navigating life and making a change. It is because you are open to and you have a receptive heart for the word of God. Paul wrote a letter to Timothy. Timothy was his protege. Timothy was his young son in the faith, that's how he would reference him. Timothy was pastoring the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a, a big city, and, and Ephesus as a church was challenging to pastor. And Paul wrote this to Timothy, and these are familiar verses. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So that sounds a lot of... I I I don't grasp it, and you turn the screens off to play this joke on us, and I can't even see the words, so I don't even really know what you just said. Let me help this, your mind, and, and help you to understand what's being communicated. Here's what he says. Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, here is what the Word of God is good for. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God. That is, it is the breath of God given to you. He says it's profitable for teaching. This is what you believe. This is profitable for you to discern what you believe about the world, what you believe about humanity, what you believe about God, what you believe about sin, what you believe about Jesus. This is profitable to establish what you believe. He goes further and he says this is profitable for reproof. This tells you where you are wrong because believe it or not, you and I are errant from the paths of righteousness at time, and this standard is unchanging. It is absolute, and it points out where we have been wrong. It is good for correction. That informs you when you are right, which doesn't happen all that often, right? For training in righteousness, this helps you to do what is right, so that you, the man or the woman of God, may be adequately equipped for every good work. It's vacation season. Everybody in this room knows what it is to overpack. You know what I'm talking about? You overpack. I don't think anybody in here has been guilty of underpacking ever. Overpacking, probably. Overpacking, you you load up the car and you think to yourself, I'm going to need that hat. You haven't worn that in three years, but I might need it on this trip. This is the trip I might need it on. And you stick the hat in there and you think to yourself, before we leave, I should grab my snow boots. But we're going to Florida. But what if our flight is canceled and we're snowed in in the winter? It's Florida. Might need them. Not not many of us fail to overpack in life. But I will say this as believers. Here's where we fail to pack properly when it comes to the scripture. Because here is what is communicated by the Apostle Paul. It is for All of us to be adequately furnished for life. The the language in the Bible truly indicates this. It It is stocking a ship for a transatlantic journey. Maybe we could imagine it if we went to the old Western pioneer days and we had to see somebody stock up their wagon for a trip out into the wilderness. They had to take everything that they would need for the journey in order to accomplish and make it to the destination they were seeking. And here's what the Apostle Paul is saying about them in Rome. Here's what I know. Every decision, every relationship, every choice... Every career decision, everything about you on your journey through life, I know that you have stocked your wagon with the word of God and you will make it to your destination. Now again, we pause and we think to ourselves, the first two applicable points to us to be wholehearted in our life is to be full of goodness and to be open and saturated in our lives with the word of God. God. This is so easy for us on a Sunday morning. We're a church crowd, but when you understand we're not talking about personality traits, we're not talking about just biting your tongue, we're not just talking about controlling your emotions, we're talking about being like Jesus Christ, and we're talking about having evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life because you are putting down the flesh and submissive and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And then be honest, because there's a lot of people who when they gather at church and the Word of God is opened and presented to them, it's the first time they've been in the Word of God since last Sunday at the same time. I don't think many of us are guilty of over-Bibling our lives. I think a lot of us are guilty of underpacking when it comes to our spiritual journey because we are not saturated with the word of God as we should be. Here's what he says. You wanna be wholehearted in your pursuit of holy things and wholeheartedly passionate about fulfilling the cause of Christ for your life. Be full of goodness. Be filled with all knowledge. And then he says this as he closes that verse out. You are all able to admonish one another. That's a big word again. What it is the idea of is counseling. You are able to counsel each other. It gives the idea of conveying something into someone's mind, teaching them correct truth. Now this is a scary thought and you have to study this principle out because nobody wants to go to a church where everybody's a hall monitor correcting everybody else, right? I mean, maybe you do. You come in and somebody says you shouldn't have worn that. Should not have worn that. You should not walk that way. You should not sit there. You should not have parked there. I don't like how you're raising your kids. I don't like how you talk. I don't like how you don't talk. I don't like how you look. I just want to correct you all the time. That is the worst and least appealing place to go to church, is it not? Condescending, know-it-alls, hall monitors who correct you on everything. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he's getting at. You are able to admonish each other You are able by your communal living and worshiping together to offer counsel to each other, to exhort somebody back onto the right path when they have gone a little errant. You, because you are full of goodness and you, because you are filled with all knowledge, are now able to counsel each other through life. You are able to cheerlead and exhort through life. Life is not easy, and a spiritual journey is trying. We've already been exhorted to not be weary in well-doing. What we desperately need is partners for our spiritual journey through life. We need a loving body of believers to surround us and to care about us to such a degree that they will exhort us, and they will encourage us, and they will admonish us when we are to the left or to the right. Now that doesn't mean all of us have a right to walk around and tell somebody when they are errant in their living. First and foremost, we must be full of goodness, we must be filled with all knowledge, and then we are able to admonish. And I will tell you, people don't care about two cents unless you are invested in their lives. We're not saying go around and correct everybody that's doing it wrong. What he is saying, though, is counsel each other. Sometimes when people think of pastoral counseling, they think of an office setting and one-on-one chatting. Or we realize that right now, we are studying the whole counsel of God. This is counseling. But the most effective counseling that is ever done in a church is to each other. And I would say to you, we always diminish the goodness in other people. That's why we need First Corinthians chapter 13. We believe all things. We hope all things. We bear all things. The fact is, life is hard enough. It it, it isn't necessitated that we discourage each other. It's not necessitated that we separate and isolate from each other. What is necessitated, though, is that we admonish one another. Filled with all knowledge in the work of God, one old preacher wrote this. We don't drift naturally toward holiness. We don't gravitate naturally toward godliness and prayer and obedience to Scripture and faith and delight in the Lord. But naturally we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance naturally we drift toward obedience and we call it disobedience and we call it freedom naturally we drift toward superstition and we call it faith naturally we cherish the lack of discipline and call it relaxation we slouch toward prayerlessness and think we've escaped legalism we slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated the fact is we grow weary in our well-doing and it is our natural state to wander away from the lord and we need each other When you and I are adopted into the family of God, we are no longer allowed to say, I don't need you. Because the fact is, we do need each other. And we exhort each other like cheerleaders through life. There is no worse environment in which to be discouraged than within the family of God. Because our very existence should be to exhort each other on the path toward righteousness. I want to make a difference with the few years I have remaining. I want to be a catalyst for change. I'm not talking about social or cultural change. I'm talking about for the Lord Jesus Christ, being equipped with the good news. I want to be a revolutionary, not in the sense of a disruptor, but in the sense of proclaiming transformative truth into a sin-darkened world. I live in a society that rejects God. I know that I'm in perilous times. I grasp that it is countercultural to stand on the truth. But if I am ever going to be wholeheartedly pursuing holiness and, and wholeheartedly passionate about the cause of Christ, I will be full of goodness. When you squeeze me, goodness will gush out. And the only way I can do that is to be like Jesus Christ and submitting to the Holy Spirit. I will be filled with all knowledge. I won't be a know-it-all, but I will be open and receptive, and I will put everything into my life from the Word of God that I need to navigate my journey, and I will be then able to admonish. I need you and you need me to reach the finish line because life is discouraging And a spiritual journey is fatiguing and we need to cheer each other on to the finish line. A group of people like us can make a change if we'll simply apply these basic, fundamental, academic, simple principles. Would you please, for just a moment, bow your heads and close your eyes.